Before I begin the afternoon teachings, I've been asked just to say a little bit since as far as I can see, it's my last uh, visit to the United States. So I'd just like to uh, speak three or four uh, minutes with regard to this. And then I'll follow on with a uh, tribute to Rumi. So I have some poems that we'll read and give some commentary on. <coughs> just stepping back uh, a little bit that um, 30 years ago, 1977, I uh, first turned up here in uh, California in the earlier part of the year. And I had, was on my way home. I had left England in the uh, April of 1967 and got uh, stuck in the robes for a few years. And, and then um, carried on uh, round uh, the, the planet. And that took me here to uh, the Bay uh, Area for uh, a few weeks. And I was checking out what used to be referred to in those days as the, the spiritual supermarket. <laughs> and um, lending an ear in what was going on here. Then flew to New York uh, City for a few days. And... Uh, stayed with somebody that I knew in India, uh, maybe Danny or Daniel Goldman, who wrote uh, a book on emotional intelligence. I stayed with him a few days, and then in the May of uh, 1977, I, after 10 years and 10 days uh, away, I landed back in, in England, having done the circle around the globe. And once all incident bears in mind, I didn't want my parents meeting me at the airport. <laughs> um, um, mostly because I, I know my mother. <laughs> so I said, look, please stay at home. Don't come to the airport. And I'll get the, uh, the bus and the train. They lived in South London. And I'll meet you at home. And like that. So, a few hundred metres from my home house, more incidents stick in that. I had my backpack on, ten years and ten days away from uh, England, walking along there, and as so often, it was a Sunday morning, and there was uh, a guy in the garden, doing his garden, as English people like to do, and he looks up at me, walking there, and he said, Been on holiday? <laughs> <laughs> And I said to him, will you, yeah, yeah, actually. <laughs> and then um, um, a, 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 few, a few weeks uh, later, um, Jack, Jack Cornfield, who I knew as a, when we were both uh, monks, and we, used to, we were both rather thin and gaunt at the time. And uh, the common view, first said of Jack and then of myself, that underneath our robes, there was only a coat hanger. <laughs> and Jack very, very kindly invited me uh, that year to come to uh, the United States to give some uh, uh, teachings. And he gave me, I remember this, he gave me two choices. One was to go to Boulder in uh, Colorado, 
And the other was to go to the new Insight Meditation Center in Barry, uh, Massachusetts. And he said, you, uh, we'll arrange, you can come to either, either one. Yeah. Yeah. So I um, had uh, listened to a tape, of, I'm not going to mention any names here, um, of uh, one, uh, what should we say, a- Asian person whose speech was not quite clear in the talking. There was a slight slur to the speech. And I thought, I think I'll go to the Conservatives. And uh, I went to Barry. Uh, and, um, and that was the beginning of my regular visits over these, over these years, you know, in, terms of, uh, in terms of actually uh, uh, teaching. And a number of those, first staff, in fact, from Barry and others, are now teachers uh, here. And, of course, Jack has been on this coast for uh, quite a few years. So there's a kind of lovely 30-year uh, connection. And then James Barras in a chai shop in Bodh Gaya uh, in 1982, five years later, he kindly asked me if I would like to uh, come to this coast and start uh, uh, teaching. And so that's been going on uh, uh, year, year, year by uh, year. And what's rather amazing, apart from uh, one letter, the, in all these visits, to the United States, many years on the, on the other coast and uh, on, on this coast. And despite everything that's gone on, that there's only been one letter of complaint. I think this is, uh, there were all the things that have gone on o- over, the, over the years. And, um, and I think it's a great credit to the um, uh, endurance <laughs> of boards of directors and trustees uh, and presidents and staff and other, uh, other, other, other teachers. And I'm very, very uh, grateful for all that that's gone on through the years. Now. The uh, decision not to, uh, to come is a little bit born out of circumstances. And if I just give you two or three minutes to uh, give you the communication uh, of this. Um, probably about 10 or 12 days ago, I went from uh, Totnes on the Tuesday... And then following morning, the early flight to New York. Then giving the workshop on the evening of the day of arrival. And then the following evening. Then five o'clock the following morning, flying here, arriving on the Friday. On the Saturday, giving the one one day workshop there. And then coming up here to give the seven days. On Monday, uh, the day after this finishes, I fly to London and arrive on the Tuesday. On the Wednesday morning, I fly to Germany. Uh, on the following Monday I fly back, then I have the four-day, five-day Dharma Facilitators program, then that finishes for two days, and I do another five days Dharma Facilitators program. That finishes, and then a uh, week after that we catch up with uh, uh, everything else, including myself, and, um, and then I go to Germany. I fly back from Germany on the Sunday evening at 6pm, and on the... Uh, to Heathrow Airport, and at 10 p.m. on the Sunday evening, I fly to Australia. I arrive in Australia for three days to see my mother, which is another retreat in itself. <laughs> and, um, and then there's a four-day Dharma facilitators program, the one-day meeting with the ten teachers, the seven-day Dharma gathering with 130 people, and uh, the five-day Vipassana retreat. This is why I'm doing this. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> because in this business the only retirement is the cremation you see, yes. but having said all that 
The only retirement is cremation, if you didn't catch the, the mumbling over here. But the, uh, the, the great support and love of the, uh, the Sangha, the deep uh, friendship, and always the, the comforting thought, because when I say, oh, this is what I am doing, just saying it makes me feel tired. But we can always rest in the moment. The moment is always accessible for resting in, wherever, whatever. And that, I think, is the saving grace for all of us who claim to be living, or think we're living full-on lives or busy lives or, or, or whatever. So um, um, given now that I'm in the white-haired club, so I'm just kind of pacing it uh, uh, a little bit more and have clipped off around six weeks over the last two years in terms of the rhythm and uh, flow uh, there. Enough. So while down in the wonderful bookshop, uh, down the uh, hill there with the great kindness of uh, Mary Ann, I picked up four or five books as I do on my regular visits uh, here. And like many of you and others, have a deep love for Rumi, the poet. This year, and in fact in the last month, a month ago, it was 800 years since the birth of Rumi. And he is possibly and probably the most widely loved and, and great deep affection towards uh, 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 his poetry. And it seems to me that what he touches in us, or certainly what he touches in me, is this remarkable capacity in the, the poetic expressions to touch upon love, eros, sensuality, profound spirituality, and deep intimations of what a truly liberated life is all, all about. And he speaks to us in a, in a language, especially for dedicated meditators, a language which you and I can connect with and uh, relate to. And he's, um, he's like um, a, a godfather in the, in the Sangha. His, his voice weaves in and out of many retreats, many uh, lines of poem, poems there. And, and I think it's something precious in poetry, because it always seems to me that as we go deeper, deeper into the very truth of things, we begin to really feel the limitations, if not the restraints, of, the, of modes and forms of language. And it takes, and sometimes, to me, it, sometimes it's in the lines of poetry that they speak, they intimate whispers of something which is much greater than itself. And the power of the poem is that it speaks of that which is beyond itself, yet of itself. And uh, Rumi is, is, is a master. He's, he's a great master. So what I uh, did, I have um, put uh, staff down the hill there, gave me a year with Rumi. You need more than a year, we need lifetimes. And just a little bit of background, there's perhaps there's a certain kind of relevance, in fact there is, uh, with Rumi. He's He's a Muslim. He uh, was born in North Afghanistan. Currently, our countries, United States, United Kingdom and other countries are making war on this country. He made the, the journey because of the various in, invasions that were taking a place through uh, the western part of uh, Asia and took root and took base in uh, Turkey. He met when he was 37 years uh, age, his uh, uh, teacher, and through their 
deep connection and friendship and with uh, various others that had inspired this poetry which essentially embraces uh, love and, the, and profound liberating truths and really bringing those uh, together. And that's something of the power of the voice. So what I'd like to do, I've just um, picked up four poems, a little bit of uh, uh, Dharma commentary uh, on, and, and just a couple of small things aside, for example. There's a very famous uh, poem of uh, Rumi, where he speaks, uh, I can't remember quite the precise language, but speaks of the visitor. And so sometimes we are the host and we have the guests, and he refers to the various different mind states that come and go. You know, welcome the depression, and welcome the unhappiness, and welcome the happiness, that kind of... So we, we are the host, and then these different mind states uh, come and go. It's an often quoted poem. The Buddha, some 1700 years prior to the birth of Rumi, used exactly the same analogy. There's another lovely piece of Rumi, where Rumi speaks of how blind we are, and we put our hand on the elephant, and we think, oh, it's a wall, or it's a post, or it's a piece of leather, or something else, because we can't see, we don't know what it is. There's a lovely piece from Ruby. The Buddha used the same analogy. In other words, in the cross-currents of poetry, and the movement, and exploration, and stories, they weave in together. Who knows where the Buddha got it from? Just weaving in, it's rather, rather, rather beautiful. And these, these stories, and they get passed on, from uh, generation to generation to generation to generation, and, and they're rather uh, uh, touching, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a tradition, and uh, uh, Rumi is uh, a wonder of the tradition. When it's cold and raining, you are more beautiful, and the snow brings me even closer to your lips. The inner secret that which was never born. You are that freshness, and I am with you now. I can't explain the goings or the comings. You enter suddenly, and I am nowhere again inside the majesty. Typical Rumi, weaving back and forth between the personal and uh, uh, the uh, impersonal. Sometimes we, exploration, looking into things. We talk, we talk a lot. It's appropriate and skillful to talk about the comings and the goings and about our relationship to them, that which manifests and that which dissolves, that which arises and uh, that which passes. And we, and we see it in the changes of the temperature, in the cold and in the raining. And sometimes in the cold and in the rain, we say, how beautiful this is. We see it in the, sm- in the snowdrops melting and passing away. And we move even, even uh, uh, closer. And sometimes in all of this weaving and this extraordinary dance of humanity, and all the extraordinariness which is uh, around us, it's as if, as he says, there's a kind of inner secret that which was never born. So here we are, we're passing through our life, we say, I take birth. The new day takes birth. The cold takes birth. The raining enters, it forms, it's, it's arisen. And 
we're looking, we're exploring all the time into the comings and goings, the comings and goings, and learning to live with it, with all of its troubles and with all of its uh, wonders. But then there comes the deep reminder from, from Rumi. What is that inner secret which doesn't come and go? Which is not subject to birth? Which is forever fresh? He says, I can't explain the comings and the goings. And then you, this truth, this inner secret, you enter suddenly. And I am no I am nowhere again inside the majesty. And the precious thing and the beautiful statement of this is that in the midst of the comings and, and the goings, that sometimes we can't explain it to ourselves, to others, what it is to be in this world, to move through this journey of life. And then something else, some, something secret, something we can't get our hands on, kind of enters into. And we realize something, something else, which is not in the world of the comings and the goings. And it touches us, it wakes us up, it, it brings something rather precious and, uh, and uh, uh, beautiful. And somehow there is a sense... And somewhere it's the foundation of everything. It's not subject to the comings and the goings. This is the majesty. This is something very precious. And sometimes just stands out for us. Again, a little similar theme here. I see, I saw you and became empty. This emptiness, this emptiness more beautiful than existence. It obliterates existence, and yet when it comes, existence thrives and creates more existence. To praise is to praise how one surrenders to the emptiness. To praise the sun is to praise your own eyes. Praise the ocean, what we say, a little ship. So the sea journey goes on, and who knows where, just to be held by the ocean is the best luck we could have. It is a total waking up. Why should we grieve that we have been sleeping? It does not matter how long we've been unconscious. We are groggy, but let the guilt go. Feel the motions of tenderness around you, the buoyancy. Yes. Rumi again is using the uh, the ocean and and of the waves. Sometimes in the world, the dance, the dance of the ego, the dance of I, me, and my. In plenty of times, both past and present, <laughs> and certainly into the future, we w- we will see that we've made perhaps a great fuss over something, whatever the situation maybe. We made a great fuss over it. And then perhaps right in the middle of the fuss, whatever whatever the whatever whatever it was about. Or perhaps through some ref- reflection, some hindsight later on. We look and we say, what was all the fuss of? What did I make such a drama out of all of this? Whatever whatever it might have been about. And when we see right through it we see the emptiness of it. We see that it was a storm in a teacup. We see, see that it was a flight of fancy. We see that it was building up a huge story. 
I saw you and became empty. This emptiness more beautiful than existence. It obliterates the existence of the drama, of the story, of the upheaval, or whatever it might be. To praise is to praise how one surrenders to the emptiness. And sometimes people have a sense of emptiness as something kind of negative or dark or cold or detached or distant. But it's the preciousness of the emptiness that makes all the diversity possible. Without the emptiness, it couldn't be full. Without the empty cup, the cup couldn't be full. And sometimes we are so infatuated with what's all the comings and the goings, all the forms, all the stories, all the dramas and all the loveliness of our life. Sometimes we are so infatuated, we lose sight of something which it all rests in, like the waves rest, rest in the ocean. So the sea journey goes on, and who knows where. Just to be held by the ocean is the best luck we could have. It is a total waking up. Sometimes we're so embroiled in the waves of the ocean. I am a wave, you are a wave, this, my family is a wave, my job is a wave, my country is a wave, what I'm doing with my life is a wave. Just to remember, to be held by the ocean, to rest in it all, is the best luck. It's a total waking up. Why should we grieve that we've been sleeping? It doesn't matter that we've been unconscious. Feel the motions of tenderness around you, the buoyancy. Next one, a few lines. has the G-O-D word in there. but And the first line is very, very precious and uh, an influential line in some of our lives. You should never forget it. Gamble everything for love. Fantastic statement. We could drop all those things that you and I have learned, remembered, etc. We could really take to heart one single line. Gamble everything for love. Beautiful statement. We've talked over the days here with love and the, the potency of it. Uh, stripping away of it as much as possible to sense it, to feel it, to see its uh, manifestation uh, in our life. And sometimes for the, uh, the act of love, however, whatever it might be, that we have to stay true to it, true to something, true to love. And this staying true to love is, I believe, the most important of all human ethics. Sometimes the tradition, not only the Buddhist tradition, but other traditions as well have have put ethics or morality into uh, lots of rules, many of them, many of them. Buddhist tradition has hundreds of them. And they have been thought out they have been decided upon. They have been introduced 
we, you and I, have been encouraged to observe them, to keep them, to, to uh, keep the code, or keep the discipline, or keep the morality, or whatever. There's a terrible danger in it. One won't read of that with Rumi. That as more rules come in, the more decisions come in. Life. It tends to bring more control. And when there is more control, there's less love. And when there's less love, there's less likelihood of the gamble for it. Because fear will enter into it. And we have to look with all our tasks and our responsibilities, whoever we are, groups, organizations, religions, or whatever, to keep the dialogue and the questioning going of what expresses, what reveals, what makes the love manifest. And sometimes, in the making of the love uh, manifest, it will have to be accompanied with risk. And often the risk is being misunderstood. The risk is voices of concern. The uh, risk is it doesn't work out. Whatever it might be about. And so sometimes the voices, the judgmental voices we have towards ourselves or we have towards others. Quite often it's touching upon, oh, it didn't work out. Not the issue. Not the issue. The issue is the love. And it may be, as um, Rumi is in encouraging here, that we have to ask ourselves very sensitively and respectfully and uh, deeply, what shows the love? Where is it in the life there? And not to confuse love with attachment. Not to confuse love with holding on to. Not to say, I love you, or I love doing this, but it causes me so much problem because I love. So we have to look at what goes around with the love. The holding, the identification, the fears, the clinging, the demand, and especially what the self wants. And somehow a great task for us, for each one of us here, and for each other, is can I live in such a way that I'm so committed to love, so dedicated to it as a human force, that everything else is secondary to it. And then the love and the liberation start to link together. Gamble everything for love if you are a true human being. If not, leave this gathering. Wow. <laughs> Mr. Rumi. <laughs> this is tough love. <laughs> Gamble everything for love. If you are a true human being, if not, leave this gathering. Half-heartedness does not reach into majesty. You set out to find God, but then you keep stopping for long periods at mean-spirited roadhouses. Whoa. Mr. Rumi. Half-heartedness does not reach into majesty. Majesty is the love. You set out to find God, to find truth, to find love, which is liberating. But then you keep stopping for long periods at mean-spirited roadhouses. No, no reference to spirit rock.
<laughs> Just in case there's any confusion. <laughs> wicked, wicked. Shoot me. <laughs> so sometimes there are points and places, as you and I know in our life, where we have stopped, we have become mean. We've lived in, in mean environments, in mean social structures, where the I, me and my has taken priority. And they have to look to see, can this dynamic, can this situation be changed? Can it be transformed? Can the power of love really start entering into it with no assurances? But one is gambling everything for love. And that voice of Rumi, in which he says here, half-heartedness does not reach into majesty. It's a kind of invitation to, to us. Wow, this is big time. This is not playing around, just uh, feeling a little bit of uh, meta for a few beings that I like. <laughs> this is really making some demands. This is really bringing some deep questioning to bring out the fullness of, res of resources to really find majesty, to really be a really authentic human being. Sometimes we have to take the steps. I remember before um, Mother Teresa became a Hollywood celeb, and it's just over ten years ago now that she died. She died in the same week as uh, Punjiji, one of uh, Shaila's teachers, who Shaila's referred to, and uh, of Princess Di, Princess uh, Diane. And Mother uh, Teresa and I uh, had several meetings together, this is before, in, uh, in, Cal in Calcutta, because I have the Roman Catholic upbringing, and she's both Roman Catholic and European, uh, etc. And we were speaking about the acts of love, about uh, giving. And uh, uh, she said to, to me one day, she said, you see this ring? She said, I'm, 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 I'm married to Jesus. He, he is my, uh, a bit old-fashioned language, he is my Lord and Master, not mercifully, most women wouldn't say that these days, but anyway. And he, she said, giving, as one of many expressions of love, starts when it hurts. And it's a little bit, you know, Catholic, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes, when we look in the act of uh, love, <laughs> the act of uh, uh, generosity, it's remarkable how Vital it is sometimes that we have to extend ourselves. And, the, and consciousness has this remarkable capacity to go beyond the defined limits of the self. Self says, I can't. Self says, I'm not ready. Self says, I am an, I am an able to. And yet something else can be moving, in spite of all the, the, the qualms and the hesitations of the self, can move in the force of the act of love. The world's eyes at the moment, this, these few days, are turned on, the, on the Burma and the, the tragedy of the, of the ongoing situation there, now more than 40, uh, 40 years. And I met, now 10 years ago, with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi. I remember speaking about it when I came here up. And, as, and she, Aung San Suu Kyi, the imprisoned mother of Burma, and under house arrest, and many of her friends and relatives, 
uh, arrested, tortured, killed, democracy movement, etc. I said, how do you endure this? How do you endure living in this environment, in these uh, conditions all the time? Because she never said, spoke one angry, nasty, negative word about the military machine that was running the country. And she referred to them very sweetly as the other group. Yeah. Some of us use slightly different words, but she called them the other group there. And I said, how do you endure all this? How do you keep it there? And with, with the, the presence and the love of uh, Burma and the uh, people, she said two things. She said, one, which is very heartening, her vipassana practice. She said, without her vipassana practice, she couldn't have got through all these years. And the second, the inspiration of Nelson Mandela. That he spent 25, 26 years on Robin Island under tortuous conditions, had gone in as a violent activist, when he was arrested and put on trial there, and came out as an utterly transformed human being and realized that words and dialogue is the means for the resolution of conflict, not acts of terror. He was changed by his experience. And she, the fact that he spent so many years when she's struggling, when she's having a hard time, and she's the doubts and the difficulties and the anguish is running through her, says Nelson Mandela he can do it I can do it so sometimes we need the act of love we need what's going to inspire us we can't be half-hearted about it she can't be half-hearted about it Nelson Mandela couldn't be half-hearted uh, about it and you and I in our acts of love and whatever manifestation let's not be half-hearted and if we if we forget then just remember the lines gamble everything for love if you are a true human being. If not, leave this gathering. <laughs> I'd love it. <laughs> okay. This is lovely. Death comes, and what we thought we needed loses importance. Profound statement. Death comes, and what we thought we needed loses importance. The living shiver focused on a muscular dark hand rather than the glowing cup it holds or the toast being proposed. In that same way, love enters your life and the I, the ego, a corrupt, self-absorbed king dies during the night. Let him go. Breathe cold new air, the nothing of rose light. And you know, the tradition, to its great credit, has in given lots of uh, encouragement to the meditation on death. And some people think, oh, must be, what a depressing thought, Be reflecting on death. But the reflection on death, and as we know, those times in our life when we've got a bit close to death, whatever that might be, that it helps immediately to put some perspective on ourselves. And what we thought was really important, with death close by, suddenly gets far less uh, uh, important. And sometimes we are so focused on, on the darkness of things there, 
that we forget to, to look at what life offers, the cup that it offers. And to learn to live with this and, and uh, uh, treasure it. And once again, in the same way love enters your, your life. And the I, the ego, that means the grasping, the holding, the clinging onto, is a self, narcissistic, yeah, self-absorbed king in the consciousness. Yeah. And it dies during the night. Let it go. I, me, my, ego, all that self-absorption, let it go. Breathe in the cold new air, the nothing of rose light. Says in the poem on the opposite page, A lover has four streams inside, of water, wine, honey and milk. Find those in yourself and pay no attention to what so-and-so about such and such says about such and such. Good advice, isn't it? Find those inside yourself. That means water, wine, honey and milk. Find it inside yourself. There's loads of it. Find those in yourself and pay no attention to what so-and-so says about such and such. This is a lovely line. The rose does not care if someone calls it a thorn or a yasmin. Fantastic. The rose does not care if someone calls it a thorn or a jasmine. So, sometimes, you and I, in terms of the, 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 the rose, if we're not concerned and worried about what so-and-so says about such-and-such, such, including ourselves, it may be, it may be, that what is said of us and all of us, you and I, we have to deal with and face with people's approvals and disapprovals. And some say, oh, this person is so wonderful. And we make a yasmin out of them. And then this, this person's a, a pain in the you-know-what. And, uh, and then referring to the thorn, uh, etc. But the rose doesn't care. <laughs> if, we have a, if we are a lover of life, and we really trust in love and there. Then all this may come and go in our, in our life. But we actually, the ethic, we remember the primary ethic. To stay true to something. Something else. Walk instead with the other vision given you, your first eyes. Bow to the essence in a human being. Do not be content with judging people good and bad. Grow out of that. <laughs> Nothing un unambiguous, is it? You know, it, 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 it is. None of the sweet, oh, let's look at it. No, grow out of that. <laughs> the great blessing is that Shams, that's the, the network, the groups of the, of the teachings, has poured a strength into the ground that lets us wait and trust the waiting. So sometimes, all difficulties, all hell is breaking loose. Lots of misunderstanding is going on in our life. Difficulties and, and conflicts are going on. Nothing's getting resolved. We seem to be in one heck of a pickle. You know, all these things that go on with life. And he, and he says, walk instead with the other vision given you. Your first eyes. The great blessing has poured a strength into the ground 
that lets us wait and trust the waiting. In the way we understand that, that sometimes, as the tradition has wisely advised, when all things are, everything's going wrong and all, it's all confusing and difficult, sometimes the resolution is noble silence. Whereas my mother would say regularly, keep your peace. Keep your peace. And as we know, sometimes when the difficulties are going on with uh, life and often social difficulties, work, home life difficulties, relationship difficulties, that sometimes the more we say, it seems to feed the pot of the difficulties. Even if it's said in the best ways possible. And therefore one of the resources that we have sometimes is just to be silent. Keep our peace. Stand steady there. Not make a fuss. Let things be patient. Be willing to wait. And one finds then in that willingness to be patient, in that willingness to wait, things in some way or other just begin to sort themselves out. And one's just, again, that beautiful maxim of uh, the Buddha and Rumi of staying true to something. In these kind of... um, teachings in this particular book and other books. It is in the single line and the intimation of it and the receptivity between the the, the reader and the read that something just meets the place and it just stays with us. And then it's a jewel. Then it's landed. And in the landing of it, it helps to bring out of us truth. It helps to bring out uh, an authenticity in, in the life. And it's just sometimes in the few words that far more is revealed than a huge amount of knowledge. And the difference is that one, in this case the lines of Rumi, is that the primary interest, and you feel the thread, you feel the thread running through, is not in information. It's transformation. And the power of language is not so much in the field of accumulated information. It's in the capacity to point to something not of itself. And that's why we need language. Not to know more, but to reveal more. And Rumi is a precious and beautiful reminder. Because words of truth uh, as true 800 years ago in Turkey, in Afghanistan as they are today in the 21st century. It hasn't changed for human beings. May all beings live with love. May all beings Gamble all for love. May all beings love the unspoken secret. Let's have a quiet minute or two together, shall we?
to, uh, I've asked uh, Ruby, uh, caretaker, and uh, on my uh, birthday in April, a friend took me to a film which was a tribute to wonderful uh, Leonard Cohen. And some friends of Leonard Cohen, some singers, Mm -hmm. artists, put uh, together uh, an evening program in which they all sang songs of Leonard Cohen. It was lovely. And so a DVD was made, and I watched the DVD at our local, locally. And in the middle of it, a young guy sang. Name's Anthony, of a band called Anthony and the Johnsons. And he sang a, a song, what, rare times that Leonard Cohen sings um, kind of God-devotional songs. You know. He was a bit too Buddhist for it. And he wrote a song years ago in the 80s called If It Be Your Will. And I haven't got it here, so don't... Um, and, um, and he sang it awesomely, beautifully. Not very often I would say it was uh, best uh, listening to a song of Cohen that I'd seen by another singer. So as soon as I get home, as people do, typed in Anthony and the Johnsons on the net. <laughs> who is this guy? So he's an English guy who lives here in the United States. And in 2000, and, so I've got the CD here, with a bit of luck, really. And in 2006, he won the very prestigious Mercury Prize, which is for the best new band, rock band, etc. And, and when they announced the prize, and yes, well, television, da, 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 that he'd won the prize there, the chairman of the judges said, you will never have heard music like this before, and the probability is you won't hear it ever again. So my went, wow. So then I got the, the CD. I have played this so many times you can't imagine. And he is, um, what's the word? Androgynous. Yeah, yeah. So he's, the man and the woman is fairly fluid in him. Yeah, bless him. So I would like to, if the sound system is working well, to play uh, three or four uh, of, 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 of the songs. And one of them, I can't remember, third or fourth one, he, he says, lovely lines, he says, when I grow up, I want to be a beautiful woman, but now I'm a little boy. <laughs> no, totally out there. So, so this, this is... Um, uh, uh, Anthony, and uh, there's some genuine depth in the lyrics, if you catch the words. There's some beautiful uh, depth, and sometime I'll give it a little commentary. So we'll keep our fingers crossed that the the CD, the skills of Ruby, the sound system all link up. 10-15 minutes. No. He wrote them. Nice to hold 
My lady, 
For today, I am a child. For today. 
Two together. <laughs>